Welcome, everybody. This is Hear Her Sports. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Elizabeth Emery. Today's guest is hardworking Sarah Dittmars, a kinesiologist, a trainer with a junior A men's hockey team in Canada, and a personal trainer. In 2017, the Ontario Junior Hockey League named her Trainer of the Year. This was super huge because in school she was told she'd never work for a men's team. Women work with women and men work with men. We talk about that and about why she's not a team trainer in women's hockey. Sarah's other business is personal training. Very recently, she developed a coaching program to help retired female athletes. I completely relate to this. It is absolutely not easy leaving a sport you have been committed to and focused on for many, many years. Competing and training become part of an athlete's identity. So what happens next? Sarah works with athletes very individually and has worked with hundreds of women. So she's able to answer that question. We also talk about heartbreak, who's an athlete, breaking boundaries, fitting workouts into an already packed schedule, being an underdog, nutrition with, of course, a few words about meal planning. Well, let's get to it. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. And thank you so much for reaching out and making time to be here. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for fitting me in. Sure. Could you introduce yourself and give us a rundown of what everything you do? Okay, well, my name is Sarah Dittmars, and I am the owner and creator of Sarah Dittmars Sports Performance. Um, so basically, I am a registered kinesiologist, which in Ontario, Canada, is a regulated health profession. Um, and I work with athletes that are currently in the game. So currently, I, I work with a junior A men's hockey club, and I, I'm, I'm basically their trainer, their strength coach. Um, so I fix them when they're hurt, help them get through a lot of other obstacles, um, and then, of course, work with them in the gym throughout the season. I also work with people, um, specifically like former female athletes, is basically my niche. And I help these women overcome the transition of leaving sport and entering the real world, kind of like dealing with their quarter life crisis. So one thing that I'm really excited about is you've worked with and coached and trained so many women over the years. So what I'd like to start out with is, you know, like what's engaging you right now and what have you been thinking a lot about? So, yeah, so I started working with athletes in 2009. I was still a undergraduate student at the time, um, but I worked with with like the varsity teams at, at Brock University and I've worked with so many women and predominantly like I just, I, I honestly love working with women. It's a lot easier for me to relate to them. Um, I get their story a little bit more than a male story. Like men, like they're just a whole different species. So um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I've, I've worked with them for, for so long. I, there, there's hundreds of, of women that I've literally worked with throughout the teams and my individual clients. And every year, so, like some of my athletes end up retiring. So whether that's from a season ending or career ending injury or they're moving on or they're aging out. Um, but since I've been doing it for so long, it's like every year I have like a graduating class, so to speak. Right. And so what's really driving me now is like what happens when it ends? Yeah. And, and I was sort of struck by that new program. When did you start that program? I started it three months ago now. It's very fresh. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was really struck by that. And so what are the challenges that they're facing moving, you know, going through that transition? Well, first of all, when you, it's like losing your first love. It's like you, you spent, you know, 18, 20 years playing that sport and then all of a sudden it's gone. It's over. Um, so it's like this, this major heartbreak and some women are, are very, happy to move on into the next stage of that life, whether that's like they want to have a family or they're just burnt out. So some, some women are, are, are ready to move on, but some really have a really hard time at letting it go. So, you know, you have this identity shift. How do you introduce yourself to people? Hey, I'm Sarah. I play, you know, now, now, now you don't play that anymore. Now, how do you introduce yourself? Or a lot of the times, you know, you go to family Christmas and then there's your uncle over there that you haven't seen forever. He's like, oh, Sarah, how's, you know, let's say, how's hockey? Oh, I'm not playing hockey anymore. And then it's like the conversation dies. So it's like <laughs> finding this, like, how do you, like, how do you relate to yourself? How do you find, how do you find passion to still work out or eat properly? Mm -hmm. 
you know, kind of like binge, like, oh yeah, I don't have to, don't have to weigh in this week. So I'm just going to have a little bit more wine and cheese on the weekend or, or whatever it is. Right. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot that like you have to get through and it's, it's, it's super difficult. Yeah. You know, that identity piece is really interesting to me because so many women that I talk to, I mean, even high level women are not comfortable saying I'm an athlete. So, you know, then not playing your sport, I can imagine like really messes with things. Of course. And I've always told people like, you don't have to necessarily be in a competitive organized sport to say that you're an athlete. So I have a client right. who, um, who always did individual sports when she was in high school. So looking at like figure skating and it was a club level, so it was still competitive. There's still some sort of competition to it, but then took up running at the end of high school. And then now, you know, late, late twenties, early thirties in that phase started doing rock climbing, you know, moved, moved out to British Columbia and, and lives on Vancouver Island, which is gorgeous. And if you ever have a chance to go out there, go out there and climb the rocks. Like it's, it's the mountains are absolutely stunning. Anyway, so she, she's like, I feel like an athlete for the first time in my life. And I'm like, well, you are, you, you know, you, you have an activity that you train for, you eat for, you know, you go to the gym and try and increase your grip strength and your upper body strength. You, you were training and you are an athlete, but never really kind of saw herself in that light. Was she able to accept that? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's, it's really like escalated her training. Oh, cool. Right. That's like she's great. really like, wow, I'm, I'm really into this right now. And of course, like I'm training to do this and, and trying to increase the grades of how hard and how difficult the, the climbs are. So, but yeah, you're right. Like saying, saying that, that word and labeling yourself as an athlete can sometimes be like, well, I'm not an athlete. Whoa. Right. And you kind of like hide under a rock, so to speak, because <laughs> you don't want that. Like, you know, sometimes people don't want the pressure that comes with that. Right. Right. Because it can be, which is why I'm saying some women are actually happy to move out, outside of that kind of identity or, or label. The women that you're working for, working with, what are they looking for, you know, in the next stage? What, like, how do they want to incorporate um, being physical into their life? So it's a great question. And it's, it's honestly, it's something that I'm still, st- still trying to learn what, what people want. Um, and that'll, that'll obviously help me help them more. But the feedback from, from the market research I've done is, like having something that you're passionate about and a purpose to why you need to or you want to go to the gym three days a week or however many days a week or eat properly, like having some sort of like, not an obligation, but like a like a greater cause. I think that's a hard thing to find after you compete because, you know, you're not going to compete in the sport that you have been competing in. So do you switch sports? Do you do your same sport, but at a lower level or not compete? I mean, it, it can be a strange place to be. A hundred percent. And it's so different for so many people. Some people, you know, they like to play like an adult recreational level of whatever the sport is. Some people don't enjoy that at all. Actually, a lot, the big common thing with hockey specifically, is you start playing what we call, in, you know, you call beer league hockey. You start playing this adult recreation pickup style. And if you're good, people just, they just slash you and they just, you know, they just make it really hard for you to have a good time because you're <laughs> so much higher, like they're so much better than them, which, which, I mean, it is what it is. But, um, so some people have a really hard time going to that level. Um, some people enjoy it. Some people really start becoming interested in and start, you know, doing like foam, foam runs, those obstacle courses, um, mm-hmm. Spartan runs or like some other sort of competition, even like weightlifting or powerlifting competitions. Like some people find like those, those types of competitions can help motivate them. But then other people, they don't want to do that. Maybe they don't like running. Maybe they have a, you know, a knee that doesn't allow them to do that anymore. Like now, now what, like what is their, what is the next thing for them? Right. What are, what are, you talked about whys. So what are the whys that you're hearing from the athletes that you're working with? A lot of it goes back into like deep self-reflection. So really looking back at the story of your life and looking at, you know, the common themes. So, so my common theme and in, in when I look back to my story is I've always been an underdog. Like I've all, like when I, when I see that word, I'm like, that is me. That's my life. Like I've, I've had to literally like, I feel like I'm constantly proving people wrong and that's a big motivator for me. So honestly, like finding 
finding your story and really evaluating yourself, reflecting on yourself, inspecting that kind of story and seeing like who, what kind of person you want to be. So as an underdog previously in the past, I want to not be the underdog. I want to be a leader, right? So by leading by example is something that really motivates me to, to do, to do like my workouts every day to, you know, to inspire other people by sharing my story to, um, to really like make sure that I'm always, um, accountable to myself really so for, so for some people it could be those races but for those for those whys it can it really depends on their personal story and if you really spend time like investigating your own life doing personality tests are you an introvert are you an extrovert right things like that that you can learn about yourself you really learn about yourself you can really figure out what your why is do you help your athletes find that why <laughs> absolutely Absolutely. So the very first thing that, that my athletes do when they work with me is that they, they go through a, like it's a mini program and it helps them investigate and reflect and then find a progression for how to become. So, so, sorry. So moving backwards, so reflecting back on their life, finding out the stories and the things that have happened them to them previously, what kind of predisposed responses they have to certain situations, inspecting their, their themselves so then doing some personality tests, writing out physically, writing out their story and really like diving deep into like their own life. And then the progression is to find out how you can become the person that you want to be. So kind of rewriting your story. That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it is. It, honestly, it is. But like it's so much more. It's so much more than just saying setting goals and signing up for a 5K. It's so much more than that. And people kind of skim the surface when it comes to goal setting. So this, you know, the reflection, inspection, progression is the first thing. And then after you do that, then you move into goal setting. And then I like to do fear setting after that. Yeah. Talk about fear setting. I, I've never heard of that before. But yeah, talk about fear setting. Fear setting is amazing. So fear is a common theme in everyone's life. You know, we don't do, you know, some people don't like to go on podcasts because they're scared of, of speaking right? You're always scared. Like there's always this fear that kind of holds us back. So when it comes to goal setting, people always skim the surface. They always just kind of go surface level. So if, for example, I want to lose eight pounds in eight, in eight weeks or six weeks where there's other evidence out there and there's other programs out there that, um, that promise a little bit more than that. So specifically speaking, I have a nutrition program that's six weeks and on average, out of about 50 women of every level you can imagine, they lose about 15 to 20 pounds. At the very beginning, wow. I make you do I make you do a goal setting. People are like, yeah, eight to 10 pounds. But I just told you, like, there's a lot of evidence saying that people can lose 15. So why aren't you why aren't you going for 15? Fear of failure, fear of dropping out, fear of not getting what they want, fear of disappointment, right? All of these types of fears. So Fear is a huge, huge part of it all. So after people set their goals, then I make them do what I call fear setting. And fear setting is literally listing all of the most horrible things that can happen. It sounds a little bit like opposite of what we want, very deconstructive, but you list everything that could go wrong. So if I don't lose that 15 pounds, am I at risk of heart failure or heart disease? Am I not going to be able to run around with my kids? Am I not going to be able to play hockey on the weekend? Am I not going to be able to, you know, and everyone's situation is different. For me, losing 15 pounds won't really make a big difference on those things. But for someone who's starting off, that's a huge, huge deal. So in the next column next to that, after writing all of the most horrible situations you can possibly imagine, it's how can, like, how likely is this to happen? Pretty likely, not likely. And in the last column, what do you do to prevent that? So everyone's situation is very different, but it could be things like, oh, I'm going to make sure that I don't miss a workout. I'm going to make sure that I drink enough water every day. I'm going to make sure I sleep eight hours of, of every night and going on from there. So you set your goals and then you set your fear goals and then then you just take the ground running. So explain to me how sort of the mechanism of fear setting versus goal setting works. So for, for like I said, for goal setting, you always skim the surface. And they don't really dive deep into like really going for things they really want, which then means that they don't really push themselves very hard. Fear setting allows you to just be super real and say what you're the most scared of. 
And when you're the most scared of something, then you really want to make sure that you, that, that doesn't happen to you. Do people end up resetting their, their goals after they've done the fear setting? Great question. So re- it always yeah. happens. It always happens. Wow. They usually always go back and go, okay, maybe I can, you know, maybe I can lose that 15 or maybe I can, you know, what, depending on what their goal is. Right. But, mm-hmm. um, it, it almost always makes their goal a little bit more intense and then it makes the work that they do to get to that goal a lot more intense. Cool. Really great. So you mentioned that you are training yourself. So, you know, like, what is your story? What, what kind of sport do you do and what did you do? Um, so by no means was I ever on the path of becoming a pro anything, <laughs> to be honest. I was very much, um, I did a lot of things. When I was young, the first thing I ever played was t-ball. Then I played soccer from the age of five all the way to 18, 20, 21. Um, but I played hockey and that was kind of my main, that was my main thing. I started playing hockey, I think when I was 10 or 11. And I played all the way through um, high school. And then I stopped playing at high school because, to be honest, I, I loved it, but I knew it was going to be at, over at the end of high school. And I wasn't going to, I wasn't, you know, going to go away on a scholarship by any means. So when I stopped playing hockey and I went to university, I gained about 18 pounds. So I went from 136 pounds up to just over 150 pounds my first year because I wasn't playing hockey for the first time in my life. I was drinking way too much alcohol. I was sleeping until noon for the first time in my life. I religiously wake up at seven o'clock every day. So I, the, my whole life had changed in that first year. I'm like, Man, I need to figure my stuff out here. So I started playing intramural hockey through the, through the university. And then I kind of filled the void that I missed, I missed hockey so much. I start, I filled that with working in hockey. And ever since then, I've, I've had to lead by example. So I just, my biggest motivation is to make sure that I am doing what I expect others to do. So eating properly and, and going to the gym regularly. Right, right, right. You're working with a, a men's hockey team right now. Would you like to work for a women's hockey team? Of course, I would love to work for a women's hockey team. I mean, when I was in university and I was working with the, I started with the rugby team and then I moved over to the hockey team and the next year and my, my, my professors and, and my like, the coaches at the university always had this rule that women work with women and men work with men. And there was no crossover, which was fine to me because there was a women's hockey team and I could, I could work in hockey with the women. But then towards the end of my master's degree, when I was for sure moving on to something next. I was like, well, that's it. Just like hockey was over at the end of grade 12, you know, being an athletic therapist ended at the end of my master's degree because there's no way that I could get a job working for a women's hockey program just because professional women's hockey or any higher level of women's hockey does not have a high budget. They struggle with getting people to their games. Players do not make any money or much money at all, to be honest. Oh my God, the, their salaries are—it's just shocking. It's it's absolutely shocking, and and you know they they actually get deducted their salary based on missing games or practices, and everyone that plays in those leagues has to maintain another career. Right. So say you're a mortgage broker, right, and you're working nine to five and you can't make a practice. Now your hockey salary is deducted because you you have to be at work. Your mini hockey salary. <laughs> Your mini hockey salary, right? So I knew right. that was never going to be something that was super realistic for me. So I kind of was like, okay, I'll let it go. And then when I moved back in with my parents, as a very broke 23-year-old, the president of the hockey club that I work for now approached me at a clinic that I was working at and said that he wanted me to work for his team. And I was like, well, what? And then the rest was history. I've been there for six years. <laughs> yeah. And, and did you go into school knowing you wanted to go into sports in I some way? To, I wanted to be a physiotherapist, to be honest. And then um, I had to do a bunch of shadowing, et cetera, when I was in my undergrad. And through my shadowing experience, I saw so many different demographics and problems. Um, I did a lot of like home care physiotherapy um, shadowing. So you go into the home of, of, the, of the client and, and take care of them there. And this one, this one client was a uh, triathlete and he had a hip replacement and he was on the end of his recovery and he was about to get back on his bike. 
I was so like, I could, I could feel his energy and his passion in it. I was just so attracted to like working with that one client versus other clients that didn't have necessarily a sport background or sport motivation. Mm-hmm. So I knew at that point, I was like, well, I don't really think I want to do physiotherapy and I want to work with athletes. So from that, that point on, I was like, well, I'm going to build something for myself that allows me to do that. Yeah. Speaking of building something, you, you have a training app, your own training app. Oh my goodness. I do. I do. <laughs> I, you know what? Like no one's going to give you anything unless you go and get it. That's so incredible. If, if, you know, I live in a very small community um, where I grew up, I had to go for what I wanted. Like no one was going to give it to me. There's no outstanding job opportunities that were going to have a high ceiling of achievement in my small community. So I had to build one for myself. Did you build the app yourself? To be honest, I have a third party, so I can't take too okay. much credit on that. So I can't like pretend that I'm some crazy code writing tech genius. That's that's not me at all. But again, looking out for opportunities and looking for things that make things easier on yourself and then making it easier to help the people that you want to help. Yeah, it's really nice. You're in the gym training, and so I wanted to ask a little bit about, like, the athletes that you're working with, what kind of regimen are you putting them on? Mostly it's a functional strength training program. So a lot of focus around natural primal movements, so making your body actually move in ways it should move, and, of course, incorporating strength around muscle imbalances, um, which prevents injury um, and, of course, gets them the strength, the gains that they're, they're actually looking for. What are your challenges that you're facing when you're working with the athletes? Um, well, athletes are always a good good example because they they have a background. They've they've done things before. But for for instance, my soccer athletes, they don't predominantly work a whole lot on certain areas of their upper body. So the challenge of that is to make sure that they have an upper body that matches their lower body. So they are preventing spinal or hip injury, but they're also making sure that they're very well-rounded. And for mm-hmm. hockey players, you depending on the way that you shoot, you're predominantly stronger on one side than the other. So trying to make sure that you can kind of round that out, so to speak, as well. Mm-hmm. For people who are in season, you're not really fixing that imbalance because it's important to be stronger on that one side. But for the for the athletes moving out of sport... Now you've got to correct all the things that they've in, like incurred over the years. Yeah, stuff that they've ignored. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And how does nutrition fit into all of that? There's so many people that have neglected what they ate because it didn't always make a noticeable difference for them when they were in sport, which sounds a little bit funny. You think that if, you know, as an athlete, you have to watch what you're eating very critically like very critically because you you need that extra bump or an extra advantage when you're playing. But for some of them, because they're burning so many calories in a day through their workouts, their practices and everything they're doing, they can kind of afford to slip a little bit and in, like have extra calories, so to speak. So and then when you move out of the sport and your activity level naturally just decreases, there's no way that you're doing two days again. Now your whole like calorie consumption and build of everything in your nutrition has to change. So it's teaching them, okay, well, even though you were doing this before and it worked for you before, now you're in a totally different, um, like a totally different structure. The hardest thing for me, um, you know, like when I was competing and training, you know, every day was was very intense, as you said, two a days. And so my eating was pretty regular. And now that I'm not doing that, you know, there are some days that I exercise way more and my caloric needs are higher. And that's where I have trouble is is how to figure out how to eat for what I'm actually doing. Because oftentimes I'll undereat and then, you know, like it's days for me to get back on track. Of course, of course. So, you know, that's where you have carb cycling um, and like the calorie differences on training days versus non-training days whereas when you're training for a sport and you're you're in your sport every day is so intense yeah you might have one day off or two days off depending on the schedule but predominantly you need to be consuming a high level of calories so that you can make sure that you have the energy to burn it off and like you said when you under eat now that like those days aren't consistently as hard 
or as intense, your body has to catch up and it takes a while. So basically, when it comes down to it and you're and you take the athlete hat off and you put on your regular day hat, you like I said before, that your calories and everything are so different. So if now that you don't have sport, the most of the work, if you're trying to lose the weight, has to come from food. So you have to make sure that the calories represent the activity you're doing now. Whereas before, you know, if say you're you're at a two thousand calories a day because you're an athlete and you're working out two days every day you're doing something versus now you're not the calories need to reflect the activity level so so much more of it needs to come from what you're eating and not relying on the activity to burn it all off and do you do you recommend tracking you know tracking calories in work you know work effort i absolutely love counting macros so macronutrients, so your carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. However, it's a very hard thing for someone to sustain if they've never done it before. So instead of worrying too much about the calorie level, just making sure that you have the right amount of each macronutrient, which if you hit those, then you hit the calorie level. Mm-hmm. If you start focusing on that and actually tracking it, then that's a very specific goal to hit every day. Do you have an example meal plan that you like to recommend? I can definitely build one. Honestly, everything I do Elizabeth, is so customized. I do not do cookie cutter. Uh. I do not do because it does it does not work. But if I had to give a very generic, you know, female structure, I would say 100 grams of protein a day and under 100 grams of carbohydrates a day and about 40 grams of fat a day if I had to if I had to make it cookie right. butter if I had to but everything I do is so it's it depends it depends on you know your your age your your height your weight your activity level what you like what you don't like is that sort of high on the protein no everyone okay. is so low on protein which is one of the biggest reasons why we feel hungry and why we have a hard time seeing anything happen in the gym because your your body needs to go through protein synthesis so your body needs protein the macronutrient to help build the muscle. So even though you're in the gym, you know, working out, your muscle is actually built outside of the gym in the recovery phase and by eating properly. Do you have proteins that you that you like? Or, or do you do the protein powders? I do, yes. Any type of way isolate protein is really quickly absorbed by your body. And there's a lot in the market that don't taste like crap. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there are a lot on the market that are full of fillers, sugars, and, you know, gums and, and, and bad, bad, like, honestly, horrible things to be consuming. But they put that stuff in there to make it taste good. So then you buy it. <laughs> right. Right. Since you've worked with so many women, I mean, one of the things that really interests me about what you're doing is, you know, have you seen themes that affect or are impacting, you know, the athletes that you're working with? I mean, one of the things that you mentioned, for example, um, I think it was on your website, was training and competing during your menstrual cycle or dealing with your menstrual cycle. That's a huge, huge, huge thing that a lot of people kind of don't even pay any attention to at all. So your menstrual cycle is is 28 days. Let's let's call it 28 days. And there's two phases. So the first phase that you go through is two weeks, and the second phase is is two weeks. So the first phase, you have a higher level of estrogen, so the female sex hormone. There's lots of different types of estrogen as well. So like there's not, there's not just one type of estrogen. So that level goes high. And then at the start of the next phase, estrogen goes down and progesterone goes up. And when progesterone goes up, that's where we get excess bloating, and like we need to consume about 100 to 300 calories more per day on average. But we typically, really? end, yeah, we typically end up eating an extra 500 calories during that phase. Huh. And that affects everything. So now like your body naturally needs more calories during that phase. And either you're neglecting it or you're overeating and you don't really know why. So people that crave things or really want carb dense sweets or or heavy 
heavy meals, um, which obviously affects like the bloating and weight gain and all of these things. And then, and then we, this, and, and so at the end of that phase is when we start having what people call their menstrual cycle. So your seven days and then it restarts. So we kind of tend to feel really bad and poorly about ourselves in that <laughs> second phase because like we're very emotional and we're going through this big shift in hormones and we're like, oh my goodness, right? So there's the PMS phase and all of the things that come in that. And then we're like, oh, I need to start, I need to start getting back in the gym. I need to start things. And that's when we decide we want to do it because it's very impulsive, very, I feel really horrible about myself and I need to do something. And so then you start the worst time ever. Whereas if you start at the beginning of the first phase, if you wait for the cycle to end and you start at the beginning of the next phase, estrogen actually helps you feel a little bit stronger and you don't have that excess bloating. So that's actually the right time to start something. So whereas men, men don't have estrogen and progesterone. They have the exact same level of testosterone every single day. They never, they never change. It's the same amount of testosterone. So they don't have a fluctuating hormone level. So they don't see any difference. Whereas we go through these two phases of two different spikes, so to speak. So it can really affect a lot of things. And it's not until people kind of start paying attention to that, that they kind of, oh, I am actually, this is my skinny week. Let's say like the first week of the first <laughs> phase. Oh, okay. This isn't actually that bad. Or understanding oh my goodness, this must be, you know, the start of that second phase, that luteal phase. This is, this is why I'm actually feeling a little squishy, right? Maybe I actually, I'm bloating. Oh, that's what's happening. And understanding what's actually happening in their own body. Right. What's hard for me though, is, you know, like, how do you balance that motivation level, which definitely shifts through the month? Honestly, it's so, that's the biggest challenge. And there's so many excuses. I don't have time. I have to pick up my kids. I have to... You know, all of these other things and responsibilities that we take on, other people's crap that we take on, so to speak, like all of their all of their problems that we try and fix and we carry it and we're trying to solve all of those issues and then we're trying to deal with our own stuff as well. So that's where I go back and that's where there's so much work at the beginning of working with me, of really knowing about yourself to really to pick out the things that you need to work on so if, if you need to introduce meditations, if you need to have affirmations for yourself, if you have to, whatever's going to ground you and help you progress. So that third, that third step I said about progressing to the person that you want to be and achieving the things that you want to do. So really fitness, working out, eating properly, recovery, all those things are just modalities at getting to where you want to be or the person you want to be or the life that you want to actually have. So I have a couple of questions. So the first one is you mentioned uh, one of your mantras, which I just love. Selfless, selflessness is self-sabotage. Oh, my goodness. Right? Right? Yeah. And that's, that's why, such a big thing. And that's why it was the first one. When I, when I, I'm sitting down one day and I'm like, I need to write like a mantra, like a list of things and laws and like the, key, like the most key principles I, can, I stand for as a person and as a coach. And the first thing I came up with was selflessness and self-sabotage. As women, we take on everyone else. Call it codependency, call it what you want. But we take on fulfilling other people's wishes or, or helping them get whatever they want, right? So, But it's also learning how to say no. Exactly. Again, codependency. We're trying to, you know, we're taking care of everyone else instead of worrying about our own stuff. And then we're going down a negative spiral and we don't always see it. So saying no to the, to the right things and taking on the right things and making sure that you're grounded and that you're taking care of yourself. Because if you as a, as a woman do not take care of yourself, you can't actually help anyone else. And we all try and do it. We try and help everyone else before we take care of ourselves. And we go, man, I'm really tired today. Right? Instead of being like, okay, I need to like slow down today and someone says oh Sarah can you do this like all of these things come at you and say yeah I can I can help you out and then at the end of the day you're even more exhausted so by being selfless you're really sabotaging yourself you're really hurting yourself both short term and long term of course yeah interesting and and so you know sort of 
taking it from that perspective, you know, how are you encouraging women to make time, you know, especially the women that you're working with who are transitioning out of their competitive life and going in perhaps into a regular nine to five job? Measuring and evaluating where you're spending your time. So if you have an iPhone and if you go into settings on your iPhone, you can go into a section called screen time and you can see how many hours a day, how many minutes a day you spend on your cell phone. Specifically, Uh you can look at, I know, right? Specifically, you can see how much time you spend on social media apps, on creativity apps, on productivity apps, like where you're spending your time. You can see a weekly average and you'll get a notification saying this week you're up or you're down. But then in that app, you can also set downtime, which is huge. Having your cell phone beside you is such an automatic, I'm just going to grab it. Mm-hmm. Right? You just can't help it. We're just like impulsively, like we just want to grab it. If you, you can set downtime, so you can set a time where you have to literally say, yes, I want to access my phone, say from the hours of 10 o'clock at night until seven in the morning, or depending if, if, if you're a nine to fiver, right? So maybe you actually want to turn your phone off at 8.30 and not really be on your phone because you want to be with your family or your partner or whoever you're spending your time with or by yourself, who knows? So you can use your phone to help you with that. Um, but really honestly paying attention to where you spend your time. So spending a lot of time on your phone, seeing how many hours a week you spend on Instagram, mindlessly cruising the feed. How many hours a day are you watching? Maybe you, maybe you love Netflix. How many, like how many hours a week are you spending on Netflix? Like where are you spending your time and is it helping you move forward? So if you need, if you need to turn your brain off, and you need to watch Netflix one day a week, two days a week, whatever it is, and that helps you, by all means. But if it doesn't, if you're like, man, I just don't have time to go to the gym, and you really want to go to the gym, and you really want to be more active, but you're spending two, three nights watching TV every night, well, what happens if you take one of those nights away, and then you you go to the gym one of those nights? I love that you're approaching it from that way rather than just saying, okay, you know, you should get up early and go before work, which I've tried and, oh my goodness, it's not good. Yeah, the 6 a.m., 5 a.m. club is not for everybody. Some people like literally, and, and, and that perception that I should be getting up and the most successful people in the world get up at five o'clock every day and that's why they're so successful and that's where they're either CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies. That's great, that works for them, but like what actually works for you? If you like to get up at seven o'clock every day and you can get everything in a day that you need, then by all means go after work. Right. But like that, especially in the, like the time changes now it's dark at five o'clock. Now you're, you know, you're going home and it's the end of the workday and it's dark and it's cold. I don't even want to go to the gym. Right. It's really hard. But if you say, I have to do it one day a week, right. Instead of getting into that habit of like getting home, cooking dinner, eating dinner, sitting on your butt for hours on end every evening. Right. So all of this sounds, you know, very hippy dippy and, you know, looking into your personality and stuff. How does that go over with the hockey team that you're working with? Or are you not doing that? Oh, I do it. And to be honest, some of them buy in and some of them don't. So having a, having an athlete buy in is if you talk to any coach, about the philosophy of coaching within five minutes, someone will say the words buy in and buy in just means to like, trust the reason like trust the source and trust what the whole purpose of everything is and some uh, some of my athletes my athletes are 16 to 21 years old men so right. you can imagine that they're not they're not buying in 100 percent. but some of them do and the ones that do literally go very very far so if i tell them to use the downtime section of the of their iphone to like actually get off their phone and i tell them that they need to go to bed if we play we play tonight at 7.30 on the road. So I gave them a sleep schedule, when they should have gone to bed last night and when they should wake up and when they should have their pregame nap today. And some of them will do it. On the weekend, sometimes we play a three o'clock game. That's a whole different sleep schedule. By giving that information, some of them will buy in and go, okay, it'll help me play better. And some of them won't. And to be honest, this year with this team, we our schedule is weird and we have Saturdays off. And when we play a Friday night, we play a Sunday. And on a Saturday, these guys like to lay around and play video games and just kind of relax and literally don't move all day. 
And then they try and get up to play for a Sunday and they have, their legs are dead. They're, they're lazy. Like they're, it takes a period or two for them to kind of come out and wake up. So it took literally two months with these guys for them to buy in that on a Saturday, yes, you can still relax, but do these, do this like yoga sequence or go for a walk or like give yourself maybe not an errand because they're not really running errands, but like give themselves something in the middle of the day to make them get up, get up, get dressed as if you have to go to work by this certain time, like giving them some structure. And then it, it does sound hippy dippy, but like if they buy in, you will literally see a massive progression. You're involved in, in, I mean, just what you just talked about, it seems like you're involved in so much more than I would have expected, you know, sleep schedule and, and, you know, their days off and stuff. That's great. It's the whole package. So the, the the level that I work in is is minor junior. So it's if you're familiar with the OHL, it's one tier below that, but the same age group. And the only difference is the players that play in the league that I work in are trying to get a full ride scholarship to NCAA. And so there's a lot of people in the world that want to go and play NCAA hockey. And whatever I can teach them and help them in the the years when they're in minor junior. I, I literally have a lot of opportunity to help them turn into something really amazing. And if they don't go on to hockey after that or they play a year or something happens and they stop, now the things that they've learned by actually actually caring so much about hockey will actually transfer over. But like it is a huge like period of their life where it's nothing but hockey and what you put into it, you'll get out of it. So yeah, it, it is a lot. It's 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 a lot. What percentage of your time are you working with the hockey team versus your other coaching? I work a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Probably between 40 and 50 hours a week with the team. And then mm-hmm. uh, and then every, like the time on the bus I spend working on uh, Saturday at my sports performance and, you know, any other time before and after practice. I, yeah, it's, it's a lot. But it's it's like literally if, if I have the means to help someone literally get to another level or go on a scholarship or you know, help them deal with the horribleness of, of it all ending. Like I've been on either side of it. I've been, I've been not necessarily where these guys are, where they're trying to take hockey to the next level to go to the college level, but I've been at the university level and I've seen, I've seen that level. I've seen junior level and I know what it's like to get out of the game. So I'm just comprehensively putting it all together and trying to make something that no one else has ever done. And you just want a big award. The, the trainer of the year. That's awesome. Yeah. So it was a big year. I was um, I was named the Ontario Junior Hockey League's trainer of the year. I was the first female recipient. Now, it's amazing. after I won that, another female won it the year after with a female runner up. That's great. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about being one of the few women in an industry that's very male dominated. When I first started, I was 23 years old. I had a head coach that did not want a female. And I had to I had to like make a lot of people believe that I was there to literally do a job better than I think anyone ever could do. And I think that's it's a little bit cocky to say, but like that's literally the goal is to, you know, I'm gonna do this to the best of my ability, but hopefully it's better than the way anyone else could do it by putting so much into it and offering so much value for the guys I work with. And when I first started, there was about three to four other women. I'm trying to remember and count. There's about four other women, I think, in the league. There's 22 teams in the league. I counted the other day, based off of the current like the current rosters and the teams this year. Out of 22 teams, there are 14 teams with a female head therapist. That's 10 more than it was six years ago. That's that's huge. Yeah, it's, it's huge. It's it's literally more common to see a young under 30 or young 30 year old female on the bench than it is to see the old guy with the towel around his neck. It, it's <laughs> it's literally changing everything. It's changing everything. Like we're, you know, you've got health professionals working in junior hockey, which whether they're male or female, that's, that's one win right there. But the fact that there's women that are doing this job when for forever we were told we couldn't. You know, we talk about representation on this podcast a lot. And I, I think it's often minimized how important that is, not just for women to see that that job is possible, but for the men around 
those women to see that it's possible. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and after a little while, they forget that you're, you know, like you're in the coach's office, or you're in the dressing room and doing something and, and someone says something that they would never have said around a female, but they don't, they don't even acknowledge the fact of that course. they said that because they don't even view you as like, they know like Sarah's a, a female, but they just, I'm just there. Like they don't, you're doing a job. I'm just doing my job. And, and that's, you know, the, sometimes it's a little bit hard to handle and hard to hear certain things that are said. But at, at the end of the day, it's like, man, I'm just here to do a job. And if, you know, someone says something that's politically incorrect or, you know, something that might trigger me a little bit, it's like, okay, it is what it is and, and move on. But, uh, so there, there has to be an understanding on, on the female side of understanding that, you know, boys will be boys, so to speak, but there's never been any sort of mistreatment towards me ever. And to be, to call me one of the guys is, is probably the most common way of saying, how do you feel about having Sarah around? Well, Sarah, like whatever, right? Cause you're just there to do a job. Have you ever spoken up when somebody says something and you're like, Oh, oh stop yeah. that. Yeah, no, I have. And then it becomes a little bit of a joke because I, you know, I want to bring it to their attention, but then they they feel a little bit bad about what they said, but yeah, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you spend so much time with, with the guys on the team and, and the coaches and it's, yeah, sometimes it happens, but I try to keep it. I'm just trying to ignore it. <laughs> What's your biggest challenge working in, in, you know, as one of the few females? A common thing that comes up a lot is that the guys want to hang around my office, which is funny to me. And I always <laughs> said that, like I said, I have, I have a new coach this year. And I said, to him, like, they don't want to hang out with me. Like, I'm really not that nice. Right. And I try and joke at, you know, joke to him. Like, I'm not really that nice to them. I can just usually say here, take this and get out kind of thing. Because you, you don't really want the guys, you know, strength and numbers to start hanging out in, in the training room. You know, like they have a job to do. They need to be focusing, not hanging out and talking to me about, you know, I wish I scored that goal or whatever it is their problems are. Or I broke up with my girlfriend or something. I don't know. That, that happens too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, having having a coach saying that they, they just want to hang out and they don't that they're not really hurt. They're just trying to get attention or trying to get some sort of empathy out of me. That's a hard one. I understand it. But like that's also an important thing to address with the player. We just did a mental health training seminar last night with the team. And, you know, it, it, it brings a lot of good things to the table that we have to have an acceptance of having to deal with things where we have to use our mental toughness to get around. Like we have to work on those things. Like, you know, it, having a mental, a mental health issue, whether that's anxiety or just too much stress that they can't handle or, or whatever it is, is just as important as if they, you know, sprained their shoulder. Like it's just as important. So I understand where a coach comes from, but that sometimes there is a need for me to be able to help them through some of those things where they need me need to like talk about something. Like I'm mm -hmm. a lot more approachable probably to them than them sometimes going to a coach. Right, right. Well, you have a different role also. Of course, very different role. Um, do you have mentors? Every coach needs a coach. Every coach needs a coach. Of course, I have, I have, I have a couple mentors. Um, right now, I'm working with a gentleman named Lucas Rubix, who is a brilliant marketer that works specifically with coaches. And when you say the word marketer, you think about like, okay, someone that helps you sell stuff, right? This guy is so focused on narrowing your message and really understanding the person you want to help. And by developing the former athlete program that I have, it's so important that I understand what they need and how to build something that will really help them. So without him, I don't know that I would have been able to make something over the last couple months that's this dialed in. I'm getting a lot of inquiries, which is amazing. Um, trying to get the word out there, of course, that it's there and that there's a very comprehensive, in-depth way of helping women make that transition. So it's still very beginner phase, but like it's, it's getting a lot of really great responses. I'm not surprised. I, I would bet there are a lot of people that fall into that camp, whether, whether that transition happened, you know, like last week or, you know, several years ago. Of course, of course. And for a lot of them too, it's like, well, I have kids now and now they're a little bit older where they can kind of focus on some things again. Maybe they stopped, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. years and years ago. And some, some of the responses are like, 
I just I just graduated like one of um one of my former in-person athletes so I, I actually trained her when she was in high school senior high school through the first couple of years she was playing at um, Jacksonville State University in Alabama she's playing D1 soccer and she's her story is great she's finishing her fourth year of university and she still lives with the soccer girls and they still train so their season officially ended in October but if you are going to play the next year, so to speak, then you still train all year round. So she's the only one that's not going to practices anymore. And she's still living and, and immersed in that environment. Wow. So the story is amazing. Where do you get your fight from? Being the underdog. Talk- <laughs> <laughs> people telling me I can't do things. You know, I think we hear that a lot. Or, and sometimes when, when people don't directly say that, it's like you're kind of looking for that in the way that they speak. It, it all goes back to my own story, right? And, you know, having to you know, feel like I always had to prove myself. It just, it's just part of, like, I guess the buildup of, of the person that I am. But constantly, constantly working on myself. I constantly have a coach or a mentor. I talk to a lot of people about things. I read a lot of books. <laughs> I, I've I've worked a lot more on myself and understanding the buildup of myself as a person in the last two years. And it's made a huge, huge, huge difference in the way that I help other people. Yeah. I mean, you talk about being the underdog. I mean, you somebody else could have just shrunk up and said, forget it. I'm not doing it anymore. So many people. And it's, you know, and that's where that self work at the very beginning is, is literally like it, it's mandatory to really evaluate your life and evaluate yourself and evaluate what you need or what you want and like there's so many people out there with so many different stories that it's hard to speak to one person and be able to say everything that they're feeling there's so many people that probably heard a little bit of this podcast thinking oh yeah that's me and then other parts were like oh yeah no and they just kind of shrivel up like you said like hunched over and go yeah no maybe not but like if you do the work on yourself, it's it's amazing. It's amazing what you'll you'll get out of it. Yeah. Well, I like to talk to guests about nutrition, and we've talked a little bit about it. But one of the things I noticed on your website is that you're an advocate for meal prep, which has been a rough go for me. I got to tell you. So I'd love to talk about that. Oh, of course. I think I think the conception when you hear the word, like the words meal prep, is that you have to spend the entire Sunday in the kitchen. Right. Like the whole day with like a lineup on the counter of different Tupperware containers. And a lot of vegetables surrounding you. And a lot of chopping vegetables, which no one enjoys. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, my approach is a little bit different. My my focus on meal prep is to write the entire week's meal calendar out, which isn't, I, I didn't invent this. So this has been around forever, but it's the best way that I can kind of direct people in that way is to write out, you know, Sunday, th- like every day of the week, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, and plan your meal. And if you can plan a meal that has a couple servings, then use that dinner as the following lunch. Chopping up, you know, a couple of celery sticks and, and stuff like that is, is fine if it's a snack, but do it like chopping up everything for every meal is a little bit daunting. So handling, okay, it's say, like I have a recipe for a chicken bruschetta and it makes four servings. So then you can have, if there's two people in the household, let's say, that's a dinner and a lunch. And they didn't have to make lunch the next day. So after dinner and you clean up dinner, you don't have to make lunches because you've just already used that. So then the following dinner comes around, you do the same thing. Make something that's going to make three to four servings and you just kind of use a grid-like system to plan it all out. And then you're doing it a little bit at a time instead of the whole entire Sunday and (laughs) chopping for days. Like that's just not something that we can sustain at all. Um, another hack I have for, I'm a big morning smoothie kind of person because you can get so much in. And on a training day, I will add like an extra scoop of like oats, right? Just to get some carbohydrates right in me right away. And so my morning smoothie on a day that I'm, I'm, I'm lifting is a little bit different than a day that I'm not. So making my recipes and making, making sure that I have everything I need is great. But then if I put all the ingredients in a freezer bag, and label it, you know, Monday, Tuesday, whatever, or whatever type of recipe I have. And then I flatten it and I put it in the freezer. And then that morning I take it out, put some water in my Nutri-Ninja, blend it, and away I go. 
Nice. So, so now my morning routine is literally like under 10 minutes. <laughs> you, you haven't made coffee yet, though. <laughs> no, no, no. So you have, to, you, have to, you have to manage it at the same time. So, you know, you get up, you drink your glass of water right away while the kettle's boiling, right, to French press my coffee. And then I get my, you know, grab my freezer bag out. Okay, now I've, I've made my smoothie to go. By the time I'm done that, the water is done. I steep my coffee. I go brush my teeth, get ready for the day, come back, pour that into the canister, and then away I go. Very good. So it's just like managing what's going to work for you, right? Like, <laughs> if you're not a coffee drinker, you don't have to worry about it. But, like, yeah, you just time it all out. But it saves a lot of time than grabbing everything from the freezer, everything from the fridge, making the smoothie. Now that's 15 minutes. Right, right, right. Right? For all the people that don't have time, they don't like that. You mentioned your the, your lifting day. So what is your weekly workout schedule? Um, in hockey season, just because I, I work a lot more than I do in the summer. In the summer, I'm about five days a week. Um, and I, I go through a little bit more grueling in the, in the summer and in my off season, so to speak, just because I, I, you know, I live with the, with the hockey guys so much in the hockey season. I'm, I'm good for about two to three days a week, but every other day, like every single day, I make sure I'm outside every day for at least an hour. Uh, honestly, like walking at like, I'm, I'm self-employed, so I get a little bit of a luxury of it, but walking from 10 to 11 in the morning is the most peaceful time of the day because everyone's gone to work. There's no one out there. There's no one out there. In the morning, you still get the people that are going for a walk before work. And from 10 to 11, there's not a soul. And so I don't live near a lot of people anyways. So I'm kind of in the middle of nowhere anyways, but it's so peaceful. So I make sure I get, you know, a walk in every day. And I obviously make sure my food's super good when I'm in season, like when, when the hockey season's on, because you just, again, it's got to be, it's got to come from food. So, it's, you know, two to three days, maybe one really intense lift and two just really good flow. So whether that's a bit more movement or the lifts are a little bit lighter, but nothing super grueling at all. And are you, are you, do you do yoga, meditation, that kind of stuff? Usually right before bed is the best time that's worked for me. So it helps me just like unwind. And again, I'm not on my phone and it's maybe 15, 20 minutes of just like light flow. Mm -hmm. But going to yoga, I mean, I can't say that anyone shouldn't do that. I think everyone should do that. I mean, especially when, if, if you're a beginner and you're not used to it, go, like go, <laughs> um, it's it's so relaxing that the meditation at the end can just really like bring you back to center, which again sounds a little bit frilly and like a little bit voodoo out there, but like like our minds are so busy of consuming so much information in a day and doing so much for other people. Again, that selflessness and self sabotage thing comes back, right? Making yeah, so that yeah. you can kind of ground yourself. So right before bed, it, it helps me sleep. It helps my hips move because my you know my I have a little bit of a hip tightness that happens all the time on the one side it makes me kind of be able to deal with that too well thank you sarah so much for being here i really appreciate it thank you thanks to this week's guest sarah ditmars for reaching out and making time to be on the podcast and a big thank you to all of you for listening hear her sports was started to increase media coverage of female athletes and women in sport 44% of athletes are women, and only 4% of sports media coverage is about women. That's not a number, it's a rounding error. As women, we're all going to benefit from speaking way up, telling our stories, and listening to stories of other incredible women like my sporty, adventurous guests. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or through your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to the Hear Her Sports newsletter, or donate on hearhersports.com. Our theme music is by the band Goldmines, our logo by Agnes Studio. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye-bye. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. 
from Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan. Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.